Let's pray. Father, that's our cry that from the inside out, as we come into your presence, Lord, as we prepare to one day come into your presence and to be judged, to be evaluated, Lord, our cry is that we would be ready, prepared, pleasing in your sight. Father, our prayer is just as you have received the worship from your people this morning, so now as we open your book, Lord, as we seek to hear from you, Lord, we ask that you would be at work. Lord, we ask that you would be moving in the hearts of people here, and we put every distraction aside. We put aside everything that could hinder hearing your word. We invite you to be among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we are going to be this morning, making our way through 1 Corinthians as a church. Um, and I really, want, I really want to help you to feel like you are in Corinth. I want you to feel like you showed up this morning at First Church of Corinth, and I want you to kind of know the audience that this letter was written to, okay? So, uh, so here we go. Everybody in this section, you've got a little part to play here, all right? You ready? Bob, you ready? Here you go. You guys represent the group of people in Corinth who aren't so happy this morning. In fact, it's been a bad few months for you. And the reason it's been a bad few months for you is because of all those people over there. You're not too thrilled with things they've said. You're not too thrilled with things that they're doing. In fact, you know, you kind of wish that they weren't even here this morning. You may even want to kind of turn your shoulder away from them right now. You don't even really want to look at them. And you could even cross your arms. And you might even want to murmur something to the person next to you as you kind of look over at one of them over there. Okay? That, that's you guys this morning. And, and do not smile. I'm seeing way too much smiling in this group. All right? Just cut that out. All right. You're here. You're here. And you're going to hear this letter this morning. Okay, now, now you find folks over here. Um, boy, you hit the lottery because this section over here, you guys really think you've got it all together. I mean, you are the cream of the crop. Uh, I mean, compared to them over here, you're way up here. And, you know, you're really pushing for your agenda. If they would only listen to you. I mean, far too many chiefs and not enough Indians. And let me just tell you, you're the chiefs and they're the Indians. And if only they would learn that they need to listen to you and look up to you and this place would just be heading in the right direction. So you might just want to tip your head up a little bit. And, uh, and you'll glance over there every now and then, but it's to kind of look down upon all those common folks over there who have joined you in your church this morning. All right? All right? Feel free to smile, but smile at them. Okay? That's, that's when you're smiling. Okay, now everybody in the middle, uh, you represent the people in Corinth who are all mixed up. You're confused. You don't know if you want to be with that group. You don't know if you want to be with that group. And here's the thing. You've got a lot of strong opinions about where the whole group should go. All right? So um, right now, why don't you just take a moment and bicker amongst yourselves as to what you should, which side you should side with. Go ahead. Just bicker a little. Tell the person next to you what they need to do. I mean, and yep. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. Now, you guys aren't even looking at them. You're just all mad. And you guys are just kind of laughing and smiling and looking down. Okay. All right, good. That's a wrap. Good. That, that is Corinth. Welcome to Corinth. And to put yourself in their shoes, if you do that this morning, it will help you understand 
why the Apostle Paul, why God is saying these things to this church. They're all messed up. They're all divided. And, uh, and the problem is, Paul wants to get them ready for the day when they will stand before God and give an account. Okay? Here's what the sermon is about this morning. Ready? It's about this. Uh, getting our church, getting our lives ready for judgment. That's what it is. And the, the strong, bold message this morning is, you are not ready. <laughs> Corinth, you are ready. You got to get ready. All right, because it's going to be a rude awakening when God's judgment comes. Paul is appealing to this church in hopes that they will stop tearing apart the work of God and that they will instead start building it up so that when judgment day comes, they actually get rewarded for everything that they're doing. Uh, but there's a lot of work to do. Last week really was the beginning of this sermon. It was called Fire Inspection. God's judgment is referred to as a fire. and The fire is going to try and consume the work of our church and of your life individually. And yet if it's built strong, your work will last through the fire. So it's fire inspection time right now. Your life, this church, fire inspection so that when the day of God's judgment comes, we are ready. Okay, so check out 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 16. And last week, uh, we crossed over the theme verse for the whole series. Did you get one of these in the bulletin last week? We put one in the bulletin this week too. Go ahead and find it and hold it up. All right, now we're going to make this a memory verse from 1 Corinthians 3, and I'm challenging you to memorize it along with the church. Uh, this is going to help us to have our, uh, our thinking right about the church. In fact, I'd like us all to read it together right now, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 13. Ready? Let's read it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Hey, memorize that and stop by our welcome desk next week and say your memory verse and we've got something special for you. Yes, it's another keychain. For those of you who've memorized the memory verse in the past, it is another keychain. We've done this in the past. So make sure you memorize that, stop by, and uh, pick up your prize. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, continuing on from last week, and we're picking it up in verse 16. And in verse 16, continuing his thought, get this church ready for judgment, Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. All right, fire inspection time. Are we ready? Jot this down. First thing to write down in your bulletin. We must act like God's holy temple. We must act like God's holy temple. Hey, listen. Do you understand that God is determined to be present in your life. Do you know that he doesn't want to leave you wondering if he's there? Do you know that he did not want to create the whole world, wind it up, and then go hide in a far off and lofty and dark place so that you can never find him? Even back in Eden, do you remember how God walked in the garden? His feet touched the ground of the earth he created. And he talked with Adam and Eve face to face. From the beginning, he was determined to be present, but then sin entered the world, right? And it polluted everything. 
So God began to establish ways so that sinful people could approach a holy God. What happened with Moses? This bush out in the middle of the desert caught into flames and, and Moses went to check it out. And what did God say through the bush? He said, do not come any closer for you are standing on holy ground. Take off your shoes. He takes off his sandals. He turns away. Why? Because he's in the presence of God. And then God led the Israelites out of Egypt. And then what happened? He started building this thing called the tabernacle, which was this portable tent. And God's glory fell into that place. And the priests could approach the presence of God. Then Solomon built the temple. And there was this one room in the temple called the Holy of Holies. It was seen as the very throne room of God on this earth. Why? Because God wanted to be present. The day that Solomon inaugurated the temple... Glory came down so that the priests couldn't even do their job. The worship team got the morning off because God came down and took over. But that's not the greatest thing that God has ever done. See, all of that was leading up to the day of Pentecost. After Christ died and entered the very heavenly throne room of God and satisfied God's wrath, only then could God's Holy Spirit on Pentecost fall on the church and God could be present among us in a way like he had never been present before. Do you understand that the church scattered, when we leave, God, the Spirit is in you. Okay, you get that? That's called the indwelling. But do you also understand that the church gathered, God is here. Do you understand that God, the Spirit, is among us and therefore we are called the temple of the Holy God? When God looks down... And he picks the place that he wants to spend the day. It's the church. The place where you can encounter the living God and hear his voice and enjoy his presence is the church. This is the place. It's called his temple and his spirit dwells among us. We have to appreciate the gravity of the indwelling. Here, when it says you are his holy temple, the word is plural. It's you. Later in the book, he'll say you singular. So both are true. But Ephesians 1.23 says, the church, which is his body, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, and so here's the thing though. The application isn't, Paul doesn't give five things that are great about being God's presence. He, he uses this truth as a warning this morning. Okay, since this is true, stop destroying God's temple. He puts in perspective all the factions and the bickering and all. You people over here, you got to listen. All right? Are you listening? Are your ears perking up? And he says, stop destroying God's temple. And then he goes even so far as to say, or God will destroy you. Now that's a warning. I read uh, earlier this week about a car accident. Poor guy was sitting at a a red light just waiting and he got rear-ended. But he looked in his rearview mirror and there was no car. And that's because he got rear-ended by a wrecking ball. A wrecking ball had broken off of the crane up at the top of the hill and rolled down and rear-ended this guy in the back of the car. His trunk flew open and the wrecking ball landed in his trunk. He had to be wheeled away on a stretcher. The wrecking ball weighed 1,500 pounds and it took out, it was three feet in diameter and it took out like nine cars on the way down the hill and then collided with this guy's poor car. (laughs) Wow, how destructive is that? Well, get this. In God's church, he cautions people, people, and says, don't become the human wrecking ball. All right, not you, Lauren. Don't become the human wrecking ball. All right, you hear that? And it's a warning to each one of us. 
We must act like God's holy temple. We are literally trampling on holy ground, the very presence of God, if we destroy God's church. Uh, we have a picture of the layout of the Old Testament temple here. We're going to put that up here. Uh, this is a uh, kind of a re, uh, recreation of God's temple. And what you see on the outside, on the outside would be what was called the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could hang out there, but then there are those shorter walls leading up to the main structure, and the Gentiles couldn't cross there. If they crossed there, they would be put to death. There were signs up that said, you are not allowed past this point. Then you got into that court at the bottom. That's the court of the women, so all the women were able to hang out there. And then getting closer to that big building in the back was the court of the priests, and the men could kind of hang around under the colonnades. But then the big building um, was called the most holy place, and only the priests could go in there. Then inside that building, there was a room called the Holy of Holies. Uh, It was the most holy place of the whole temple. And guess how many people got to go into that room? One, the high priest. Guess how many days of the year he got to go into that room? One day. And he went in, and if he messed up, the threat was God would strike him dead. Or if anybody else went into that room, God himself threatened to strike them dead. Why? Why? Because sinful men are not welcome in the holy presence of God. He went in with an animal sacrifice to help appease the wrath of God. And then he ran out of there as fast as he could. Okay, But after Christ died, he opened the way so that we could all enter into the very presence of God. And the word used here for temple, when it says you are God's temple, there's two possible words that could have been used. It could have been just the temple, like the the temple, the, the larger precincts, but that's not the word. The word used is the word for the sanctuary, the innermost place of the deity's presence. So therefore, you're not just the temple. You are that inner room, the very throne room of God. And if you're holding the sledgehammer and swinging for the fence, God will destroy you. Do you understand the gravity of that truth? The church is now the place of the presence of God. And we can destroy God's church. We can destroy it by what we practice or we can destroy it by what we preach. But anybody who's sitting here this morning will have the opportunity to destroy it. I found this t-shirt earlier this week. This is pretty funny. Check this out. You can buy a human self-destruct button t-shirt. You like that? On the shirt is a big, red, bright, blinking self-destruct button. And, And that's very appropriate to this passage because any one of us at any point can show up wearing that shirt to God's church. And any one of us, at any point, can choose to push that button and destroy God's church. It's the nuclear option of righting wrongs, of expressing your displeasure. It will be glowing, it will be flashing, it will be begging to be pushed. If the pastor won't push it, maybe the elders will. If not, maybe the staff will push it, or maybe the ministry leaders. If that doesn't work, maybe some smart, polished, articulate member of the congregation We'll push it. But each one of us needs to heed the warning this morning that we will not destroy God's church. Where are our leaders? If you're a small group leader or a ministry leader or an elder in this church or a staff member, go ahead and stand up right now. Our leaders, go ahead and stand up if you're a leader in this church. All right, this truth applies to you. This truth applies to me. Uh, The day is going to come when one of us, for whatever reason is sideways about something, and there will be a tremendously loud voice begging us to push the self-destruct button. It may be contextually according to what's going on here. It may be to 
the threat to divide the church into warring factions or to push an unbiblical agenda that empties the cross of its power. It might be the desire to elevate yourself to superstar status over even the Lord Jesus, robbing him of his glory. It may be even adopting a warped mentality and starting to justify sin in the lives of others around you. However it happens, leaders, you have to hear me loud and clear. You have to hear me. Do not destroy God's church. You can have a seat. This weighs heavily on my own heart, as uh, sadly so many pastors and so many churches are the ones who push the button. And they push it by falling morally in their own lives, and it destroys the church into many pieces. Um, when I was at the Harvest Training Center at Big Harvest, the first week that we were there being trained to be church planters, they brought us into a room, they turned off the lights, and they spent two hours going through a PowerPoint slideshow showing us pastor after pastor after pastor who fell into either sexual sin or money sin, robbed the church, and they told us what they did, when they did it, what their ministry was like before, what it was like after, and many of these men ended up in prison. Two hours. And I tell you, I was scared beyond what I had ever been scared of before. And, and I got home that night and Lauren said, you're like white, like a ghost. And I said, yeah, there's good news. You don't have to worry about me cheating on you for at least 10 years because I am scared to death. And then in 10 years, I'll go back for a booster shot because they just messed us up with this thing they showed us. I say that jokingly, but I'm very, very glad that we have elders who watch over me because, because I'm the one who the enemy will first try. He'll try and get me to press the button. Uh, pray for me. You think I'm strong enough? You think on my own strength I can avoid that? And I say that humbly. I need, I need also to be held accountable. And so do our leaders. Um, but it's not just our leaders because oftentimes the leaders do pass the test and they don't push the button. And somebody in the congregation is the one who will stand up and do it. So congregation, this is for you. What will cause it? What will it be that will lead you to want to push the self-destruct button? Well, here's the thing. It might be something that was genuinely wrong. Maybe it was something that's genuinely wrong and the church shouldn't be doing what it's doing and you have every right to feel the way you do. But you still don't get to push the button. How you react to a genuine wrong matters to God. And you're not allowed to blow up God's church, even if you have the right to be angry. But other times, it might be something that violates your personal convictions. It might be something that was just a mistake. Somebody just made an oops and it hurt you. It might be something that's not even true. Rumors, something somebody said, something somebody did allegedly, a lie about me, a lie about our leaders, and you believe it. And you're, boy, if that's true, it, but it's not true. Here's the thing. It's never the time to push the button. Never. It's never the right option to destroy God's church. And the congregation has to heed the warning. Also, I would include non-believers in this group. When it says God will destroy him, um, that's a different kind of group here. You see, that's a group of people who Paul is beginning to bring into question the eternal salvation of some people. If people persist in destroying God's church, even after the warning, Paul begins to say, you might not even be a Christian. And listen, if you continue with what you're doing, God will destroy you. It means eternal judgment. Uh, it means God will take you out and you will be held completely responsible for what you're doing in and among God's people because it's sinful. So whether you're a leader or a congregation member or a non-believer, hey, we have to heed the warning. We must act like God's holy temple. This leads us into the next point. Um, 
speaking directly to the group in the middle who are kind of undecided. You don't know really where you're standing. Number two, let's read verse 18. Verse 18 and 19, it goes on to say this. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Okay, jot this down. Uh, Fire inspection. Are you ready? Are you ready for judgment? Is our church ready? Fully identify yourself with God's wisdom. Fully identify yourself with God's wisdom. Uh, He starts talking to those people who are deceiving themselves and thinking that they are wise. Okay, in fact, I should be over here talking to this group because these are the spiritual hoity-toities over here who think they're above everybody. And uh, and just look at you. Now now we're talking to you, okay? Uh, If you think that you're wise, become a fool. Now, he's not bashing Jeopardy lovers here, all right? If you really like to stretch your mind and read books and, you know, you got a great ACT score, power to you. All right, you don't have to significantly lower your intelligence to become a true Christian, all right? That's comforting to you, I know, because you wouldn't want to lower yourself like these, these people over here. But here's the thing. In this context, become a fool means become a Christian. You see, some of you over here thought that you had wisdom that didn't come from God, didn't come from his apostles. It's coming from the world, and you think you've got to get a lot of that included in what's being set up here. All right? Some of you are undecided as to whether or not you are truly going to embrace the foolishness of the cross. You get that? So it's not a smart thing. It's a spiritual thing that you're being indicted on. And you thought you had a greater spiritual intelligence or awareness or authority than God's messengers. And you're trying to sway some of these fine people into believing that you've got a better truth than even the apostles had. Uh, that's dangerous. You have to fully identify yourself with God's wisdom. Become a fool that you may become wise. Hey, do you know that if you truly are sold out publicly for Christ, the world is going to know and they're going to treat you differently? Do you know that? Do you know that if you publicly go, uh, I mean, all out for Christ, that you are going to be looked at like you are a fool? Check out this picture. This is how they're going to see you. They're going to look at you like you're this guy. That's us. That's how the world's going to see it. You believe that? You believe that? You really believe that? You're so foolish. And yet God says you're wise to believe the foolishness of God. We have to fully identify ourselves with God's wisdom. You know, there are several people in this room today uh, who are just not Christians. You're at church, but you're not a Christian. Uh, Maybe you've gone to church for a long time, but you're not a Christian. I mean, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being at Portillo's makes you a hot dog. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you're with. Uh, Being a Christian is a personal decision you make to embrace the foolishness of God, which is the message that Jesus Christ came into the world, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, and if you trust him as Savior, you will be saved. And you know what? To the world, everything I just said is stupid. Dead people don't come back to life. There's more than one way to get to heaven. That's what they're, what they're believing. But you have to embrace the foolishness of God if you're going to get to heaven. And listen to the words that God uses when he describes the wisdom of the world. He says he catches them in their craftiness. You see, the wisdom of the world is against the wisdom of God. I read a story this week about a thief 
I love dumb criminal stories, so if you have them, send them to me. But get this, it says, victim almost helps burglar carry his TV. A Wilmington man's kindness helped lead to the arrest of two alleged burglars. The journal reports that the man returned to his home at noon on Wednesday when he noticed the man carrying a flat screen TV down the street all by himself. Police say the homeowner offered to help him carry the TV until he noticed something strange. The television was his. It was being stolen. The homeowner then looked up at his house, noticed the door was open, and then he began to chase the thief and quickly dialed 911. The thief was caught and arrested. Hey, listen, that's what God does. To those who don't believe his truth, to those who are wise by the way of the world, you know what he does? He, he catches them going against his will. And one day he'll bring them to judgment. And so you have to make a choice. Do you believe the truth that God has set before you or do you reject it? He catches those who break his law. It also says that he calls it folly. The word means foolish or absurdity. It's from this Greek word that we get our word moronic. The wisdom of the world that's against the cross of Christ, God just says it's moronic. It's idiotic. It's foolish. He also says it's futile. Uh, that comes from Psalm 94.11. And the, the catches its craftiness comes from Job 5.13. So he's alluding to the Old Testament here. Psalm 94.11, it's futile. It could be translated but a breath or emptiness, or pointless, or worthless. It's nothing. And you have to understand that there's a battle in the spiritual realm and on earth over what you are going to believe. Hey, this even goes back to Eden. Do you remember what was said in Eden? We've got this verse. We're going to put it up on the screen, Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be, what does it say? Desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Hey, do you get that when it comes to what you believe, there's no neutral ground? Either you're believing the truth that God has set before you, the truth about his son, or you're believing an opposing truth claim. And God catches those who believe things that are against what he teaches, and there is no neutral ground. You have a very real choice to make about what you believe. You have a very real choice to make, and there are eternal consequences to what you choose to believe. Look into your own heart. Are you fully embracing and identifying yourself with God's wisdom? Have you taken that step of accepting Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior? Have you gone public and gotten baptized to show everybody that you're a fool just like the rest of us? Or are you vacillating? Are you undecided? Have you made your mind up? I think of our college students who are in the room this morning, and I just ask yourself, hey, are you currently tempted to rise above the truth that you were taught as a child? That was good for then, but now it's time to wise up and move on from what you were taught as a child. Hey, is that you? Listen, the Bible says, do not deceive yourself. Become a fool that you might become wise. I think of our adults who perhaps at this point have spent 40 or 50 years of their lives in church. Hey, are you feverishly attempting to discover new or hidden truths that you weren't told as a child? Are you getting restless with the things that you've heard all of your life? Are you trying to now convince others that there's more to it? Do not deceive yourselves. Become a fool 
that you might become wise. I think of our high schoolers who every day, if they're in public school, are just being exposed to morals and and teachings that are simply not compatible with their Christianity. Hey, are you tempted to think that what you're being taught is just out of date? You have to somehow find a way to combine what you're learning at church with what you're seeing at school. The morals and the teachings, are you trying to mush them together? Hey, listen, listen, don't deceive yourself. Become a fool so that you might become wise. The challenge is to fully identify yourself with God's wisdom. Fire inspection, are you ready to appear before a holy God? The time to decide that is now. Well, so first, we have to act like God's holy temple. Second, we have to fully identify ourselves with God's wisdom. And third, jot this down, we have to grasp the magnitude of our inheritance. We have to grasp the magnitude of our inheritance. What's at stake here and where does it come from is the question. Check out verse 21. Verse 21, it says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. He's trying to tell people, stop running to humans to try and get at wisdom or morality that you could get from God. Stop championing people. Stop worshiping men. And some of the teachers had a big problem with this because they were trying to get the crowd around them and build their team. You know, I think uh, we got a picture of this. Some of the leaders saw themselves like this in the church of Corinth. Check this out. And some of the people saw the leaders like that. And so this whole point is like, no, 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 no. Get away from them. It's all from God. It's all from Christ. Everything. And, and this is amazing because it starts to list the things that we find in what would be called our heavenly portfolio. Call it our inheritance. Call it everything that became rightfully and legally ours when we trusted in Christ as Savior. And, and everything that you are currently lacking if you're refusing to trust Christ as Savior. Okay? You get that? Fire inspection. What belongs to you because of what you believe? I read a story about uh, bank protesters who were arrested because they went into a... Um, bank in Los Angeles, and they tried to cash a $673 billion check. It was made out to the people, (laughs) I like this, it was made out to the people of LA. They wanted to get back the money um, that supposedly the banks had stolen from the people. So six men and four women were arrested because they refused to leave. They tried to cash the check and get what was rightfully there. This is ours and we want it now. Yeah, that's comical, uh, but get this. If you, were, if you were to truly go and to cash in on the inheritance that's rightfully yours in Christ, if you got it now, it would be far more valuable than a $673 billion check. It blows my mind what became ours in Christ. And when you understand what became yours in Christ, you don't run to anyone else to get anything else because it's all found in him. When you understand what is being offered to you in Christ, you rush forward to grab it. So what is it? Well, first of all, the teachers and leaders, it says, Paulus, Paul, they're yours. In other words, you don't belong to them. They belong to you. God God sent them to you to teach you. They're yours. All right? So think rightly about them. They're a gift of God. It also then lists life and death. How do you figure that one out? Well, he's talking about spiritual life, the fullness of life, 
eternal life that was given to you only in Christ Jesus. Revelation 21.27 says that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21.6, Jesus says to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Revelation 22.14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, Our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Hey, this is the truth. This is what becomes yours in Christ Jesus. Eternal life. Life that you didn't get at your first birthday. Life that you can't get any other way. It's eternal life, and it's found only in Christ. And not only that, but death is overcome when you put your faith in Christ. This is the truth of the gospel. Death is no longer your overlord. Death is your chauffeur that drives you to eternal life the moment after you die. You have nothing to fear. Life is yours. Death is yours if you're a believer in Christ. What else? It says things present and things to come. Well, there that encompasses everything in this current life and everything in the life to come. In its entirety woven together, God is glorified by giving you everything here, everything to come. This may sound arrogant, this may sound proud, this may sound narrow-minded, but the truth is God is determined to turn over the entire world to his church after judgment. And those who aren't saved by faith in the person of Jesus Christ lose everything forever. But Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Hey, God's got a plan to renovate the entire universe and to rid it of all sin and death forever. Are you excited about that time? Are you excited about the day that will come? It's coming. It'll last forever. Look all around you. Look inside of you. There will be no more sin. It will be extinct. There will be no more death. He will be defeated And it's because Jesus died on the cross for you. That's the day that's coming. And he's holding off now. We're dealing with this world. We're dealing with sin. We're dealing with foolish people. We're dealing with tragedy. Why? Because he's being patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. You're putting up with this world now. uh, uh, But it's yours. It's all yours. And it's yours in Christ. So boy, we can be patient and have hope. It's all yours. And then it says, you are Christ's. You're his belonging. You're his possession. He purchased you with his own blood. He he ransomed you with his own life. The day that you put your faith in Christ, there was a big old real estate sign on the front of your property that said, sold. And you're now God's real estate. And he came in and he dwells within you. And he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You are Christ's. You are Christ's. And Christ is God's. This is the functional subordination of the person of Christ to God the Father. Though Christ is God in every way, he is 100% God He has subordinated himself to the will of God the Father so that God's plan could be rolled out. It's amazing that we see the whole of the Trinity at work here. God's Spirit 
dwells in you. God the Father is opposed to the wisdom of the world. You belong to God the Son. That's your inheritance. This all brings us to a moment of gravity. You see, we're called to make a decision. And after you hear you're God's temple, His Spirit dwells in you, maybe that leaves you wondering, well, well, am I truly a a member of God's church? Do I really have God in my life? And if you feel like the answer is no, if you feel like, well, where's God been all my life? If you feel like he's been distant, well, it's because it's true. But it doesn't have to stay that way. And, and if you've been meddling with the wisdom of the world and trying to combine the two together, and if you've been half-heartedly devoted to Christ, or if you've just been flat out faking it, hey, this is a real bad day to ignore this message. This is an awful day to ignore this message. You have to fully identify yourself with God's wisdom. And at this point, you've got to take stock of what you have waiting for you in the next life. Because either it's judgment, condemnation, no hope, you lose everything, or or everything of God's becomes yours, and it's free. Cost God his son, but it's free to you. And I just want to say that it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter how you've lived. If you're a believer, it doesn't matter how far you have veered off of God's path. Hey, listen, this is the morning that you make the hard decisions and get your, ready, your life ready, your personal life ready for judgment. This is the morning that you make the hard decisions, that you repent of sin. And maybe this is the morning that for the first time you actually surrender your life to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And then you are filled with joy as you look ahead to your eternity because you know God loved you. He sent a Savior to die for you and He will welcome you into His presence forever. Let's pray. Father, what a heavy message to hear. And yet, what a joyful truth that you are among us. You're determined, even though we have sinned, even though we've fallen short, you are determined to make a way for us to enjoy your presence forever. Father, I just pray this morning that you would help us in light of that truth to love the people around us, even when we're mad, even when we're angry, even when we have been genuinely wronged. Lord, help us to never push the self-destruct button because this is your church and you are here. Help us rather to treat each other with grace, with love, and with kindness. Father, I pray for those who are undecided in their hearts. They have not yet become fools for Christ. They need to make that choice now. Maybe they have been meddling with the morality of the world and they've been fighting you in areas of their life that they refuse to surrender. But Lord, here and now, they lay down their arms and they want peace. Father, I think of those who this morning, they haven't thought about judgment in a long time, but they just flat out know that if their day was today, if this was the last day on earth and they stood before you, they know they would not go to heaven. You've brought them here for this moment and you've offered them the free gift of eternal life through faith in your son, Jesus. I pray that they would accept that. I pray that they would approach you humbly and reverently. They may want to pray something like this in their own heart. Father, I believe 
that I have sinned and I stand guilty before a holy God. But I call upon Jesus as Savior and Lord, ask Him into my life so that I can go to heaven. I want the inheritance that I heard about this morning and I fear the judgment that's coming. So forgive all of my sins and be real in my life. Father, anyone who prayed that this morning, give them a rush of peace and joy as you enter into their life like never before. Overwhelm them with your kindness. Reassure them that they are yours, that they belong to Jesus Christ. Therefore, to God, you will never cast them away. Give them confidence, Lord, that they will stand in the judgment. Father, bless your church. Unify us, favor us, and use us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.